So when I was in school, there was a boy named Jack. Maybe you had Jack in your school, or maybe it was a little bit different, but Jack was the kid that everybody picked on. The kid who always sat by himself in the cafeteria. The one who others made fun of. We've probably all known a Jack. Maybe it was on our sports team. Maybe it was at work. Maybe it's at school. Or maybe you were Jack growing up. The kid who was always pushed to the outside, the one who nobody ever paid attention to, the one that nobody wanted to listen to, the one that people wished would just go away. Well, in today's story, we meet a man who is a lot like Jack. Far magnitudes worse in terms of what happens to him and the way he was treated and the way he was cast out. And so we're going to read that story and see what it might offer to us. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, the story that we just read. And so we're in this series called Our Strange Bible, looking at some of these different passages that are a little peculiar, a little strange. And maybe as you were listening to this story, you heard a part or two and you said, what is that all about? Why is that in here? What's going on here? So let's set the stage for what happens here in this story. So in Mark chapter 4, we find Jesus teaching. And he's in the city of Capernaum, kind of on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee, also known as Lake Gennesaret. And sea of Galilee, sometimes you think of a sea, and for me, I think of a sea, and I think of something as large and huge. Sea of Galilee is not very big, maybe 12 and a half miles long, seven miles wide at its widest. So it's a small little thing, about Muskegon Lake size. I mean, just this little lake, and it's there, and Jesus is there, and this is a beautiful lake. It sits at relatively low elevation. So the temperatures around the lake are nice and warm. It's got these nice sandy beaches. And in the days of Jesus, the historians tell us it was well stocked with fish. The one thing that's a little challenging for the Sea of Galilee is on both the eastern and the western shores are these large cliffs that loom up, maybe 2,000, 2,500 feet on each of the shores. Well, what happens with these cliffs is Weather patterns move in off the Mediterranean Sea and then they drop down off the sea cliff and so warm and cold air mix. And well, when you get warm air and cold air mixing, you get storms. And so these storms would rise up all of a sudden on the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus has been teaching in Capernaum and he tells his followers, he said, let's go to the other side. And it's not clear whether he just wants to get away from the crowd but I think he also wants to go to the other side. And then the other side of the Sea of Galilee, as he travels from the northwest kind of to the southeast corner, is the Decapolis, this region of cities, this city, area of region of people who are not Jews. And he travels to this area. And so they're on their boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. And it's interesting. Archaeology is a fascinating subject and teaches us lots of things because we always wonder, what do these boats look like? A number of years ago, they actually found a boat that they date to the time of Jesus. The water levels were kind of low, and in the silt was this boat preserved. And the boat was about 26 and a half feet long and about 7 and a half feet wide. So you can imagine a little bit smaller than our stage up here. And so this was the kind of boat they would use, and they would have a, there was a deck up in the bow and a deck in the stern, and they might power it by a set of four oars or maybe with a sail. And so Jesus and his followers get in one boat and Mark tells us there were several other boats and so they're traveling across this Sea of Galilee. And one of those weather patterns 
One of those times when the air comes down off those cliffs, mixes, and a furious storm comes up on the sea. And the waves start to roll and it starts to swamp over the boat. And then Mark says, Jesus was in the stern sleeping. So Jesus is at one end of the boat on this little deck thing and it says he's on a cushion, probably just a sandbag that they used for a ballast and he's kind of curled up there in the midst of this storm, which is what any of us would do in the middle of a storm, right? If you were out on your boat in Lake Michigan and sometimes big storms come up on our lakes, then what would you do in the midst of a storm? Take a nap, right? This is exactly what Jesus is doing. And his followers start to panic a little bit. They wake him up. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Teacher, you've been with us all these years. You've been teaching us and telling us all these things. Don't you care about us? Maybe you'd say, teacher, don't you care if you drown? But he said, teacher, don't you care? And Jesus is like, why? And so, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So he gets up. And then Mark says, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, which is kind of interesting language. Rebuke. And a rebuke is not one of those words that I use a whole lot in everyday language. It, it's very much a churchy kind of word, isn't it? You rebuke something. But I think Mark is pointing us to something else. And so if you've heard me preach before, I talk about hyperlinks. I borrowed a, that phrase from another scholar named Tim Mackey. And he talks about hyperlinks or Easter eggs might be another way where you link these things. And so this idea of rebuking the winds and the waves, because for the ancient Israelites, in fact, for most ancient cultures, the water, the seas were a scary place. I mean, if you look at ancient maps, there's always these things. There's dragons out there. There's, they would sail, and when they sailed, they'd stay close to the shores because the seas were this place of uncertainty. They didn't have radar. They didn't understand all these things, but they knew the sea was dangerous. If you read the Psalms, like Psalm 69, when the writer is describing what he, this overwhelming sense of dread and fear, he talks about being drowned, of being overwhelmed. And we use that kind of language, don't we? Somebody's drowning in debt or they're drowning in fear. Things, you know, I'm being swamped because the water is this scary place. And so there's this sense of overwhelming. But there's something else in the story of God's people that has to do with the water number of different stories, but the most significant story for God's people is their rescue out of slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt and God rescues them out. And you can read the whole story in the book of Exodus. There's a series of plagues and all these things go on. But the big final act is they come and they're in front of a body of water. The Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, they're in this body of water. And they look off and the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt is chasing them and is his chariots, and they're wondering what's going to happen. Are they going to be drowned? And then Moses, their leader, takes his staff, and then God parts the sea, these waters of chaos, and they walk through on dry land. And then as Pharaoh's armies walk through, the, the seas come crashing down. Psalm 106 describes it. And Psalm 106.9 says it this way, talking about it. And it's speaking about God. He says, He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as though a desert. And so I think Mark is intentional with this language. When he says he rebuked the waves, he's inviting us as readers, as careful Bible readers to say, wait a minute, rebuke the water. I've heard that before. Oh, 
God is rebuking the Red Sea, this place of chaos. He turns it into a place of rescue. What does he do? He rebuked the Red Sea and the waters dry up. Jesus rebukes the water and the wind and the waves. And what happens? It gets calm. Where all these waves and all this stuff was going on, all of a sudden it's calm. And he looks at his disciples and wonders, well, did you think I would not take care of you? But then it says they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They've been following Jesus around. They've been listening, but they see something and they end with a question. I don't know about you. Have you ever watched a movie or read a book and it ends with a question? And it's terribly frustrating. And it's like, well, I want to know the answer. Don't, don't end with a question. Give me the answer. Well, Mark does give us the answer in the story we read. Because that's oftentimes how the Bible works is it sets up the next story. Mark didn't just grab a bunch of stories and kind of mash them down on pages. Oh, that all works. Mark and each of the other gospel writers, each of these people who told the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, took the stories of Jesus and they crafted them together. We often think of them as these simple peasants, as fishermen, as, as tax collectors, as illiterates. But when you read the Gospels, these are literary geniuses. They took all these pieces and they put them together. And so Mark ends with the disciples asking, who is this? And then he leads into this story and it's almost an invitation to us to say, well, who is it? I want to know who it is. And so we get this story that we heard Teresa Drews read. He says, so they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And they said, Jesus gets out of the boat and a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. We're going to come back just a minute to this idea of the impure spirit. It says this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. So we get this idea of this man who has been pushed away from his family, pushed away from his friends, sent to live in the graveyard. Sent to live down in the cemetery amidst all the bones and everything going on. And, and the people dislike or were so afraid of him that they even put chains on him, but they wouldn't hold him. In the language there, they said no one was strong enough to subdue him. And the word subdue could also mean tame. No one was strong enough to tame him. When we talk about taming something, what do we usually infer is being tamed? Well. An animal, right? You don't, you don't talk about taming a person, do you? You talk about taming an animal. And so the idea is that these people in the town thought of him as an animal. He wasn't even worthy of being called a person. He was just an animal to be put in chains, to be tamed, to be put outside the society. So Jesus comes on this man who has been pushed to the extremities, pushed to the outside. And it says it's because of an impure spirit. Or later on, it talks about demons. And this is maybe the first part of the story we're reading where we think, this is a little strange. Because at least for many of us in our experience, we don't deal with demons or demon possession on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not something I've personally experienced. But what the Bible, what God invites us to do is to recognize that there are supernatural powers beyond what we see. That this is a reality. 
And we often want to have all kinds of questions about the demons. Where do they come from? What do they look like? Do they stay in one place? And some of those questions continue in this story. But the Bible isn't always interested in asking those. But it does tell us one thing about demons. It tells us that they are evil. And it tells us that one of their primary purposes, one of the primary things they do, is seek to destroy, to deface, to defame the image of God in people. That's their intent. I mean, we often talk about evil as something like, well, I, you know, that person did something evil. But what the Bible says is evil is something beyond what simply exists inside of people. That there is so, there are evil forces in the world at work seeking to destroy the good things of God. And in particular, whenever we read about demons in the Bible, rarely are they out there like, smashing down blueberry bushes or pick plucking the flowers. And what are demons doing? They're affecting people. They're working hard to destroy, to deface, to defame the image of God in people. And that's exactly what we see here. And so this demon, this man who's possessed, sees Jesus at a distance. He runs and he falls on his knees in front of him. This demon isn't in a place of power. This demon's saying, in some sense, the demon's already started bargaining started to say, oh, Jesus, you know, what, what are we going to do here? He recognizes his defeat. And then the, Jesus, then the demon says, or the man possessed by the demon, he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? How did the previous story end? The disciples, the ones who followed Jesus, wandering around following him, asking, who is this? Who gives the answer? Demon. The demons do. Isn't it fascinating that sometimes in the Bible, it's the demons who are fastest, most quick to recognize the divine, the power of God in their midst. The people are like, who is this guy? And he, the winds and the waves listen to him. The demon's like, this is Jesus. He's the son of the most high God. Now, some people think maybe what he's doing is trying to take power over Jesus, this part of the mythology or part of the, and I use the term mythology and not necessarily saying it doesn't exist, but the, the stories that go behind demons is that you could gain power over them by naming them. And so some people think that's maybe what the demon was trying to do was gain power of Jesus. But we see the demon's already on its knees. He's asking, the demon already recognizes his defeat. He's not trying to gain power over Jesus. He's just acknowledging who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of the most high God. We see Jesus ask, what is your name? Is it? It's this sense in the, the demon says, my name is Legion. For we are many. Now, not to suggest that this was actually the demon's name. There wasn't a demon birth certificate that said Legion on it. This was the idea that the legion, the demon is saying, there's a lot of us. A legion was something that people would have recognized. A legion was this group of Roman soldiers. Probably 5,000, 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horse. And so here was this thing, the demon's saying, there's a whole bunch of us here. There's no, you're not dealing with just one. We are many. And then there's this, this is where it starts to get even more strange. And it says, the demon begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. 
And then it says, there's a large herd of pigs feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs to allow us to go into them. We don't know exactly what's going on here. But it seems that maybe the demons need a host to live in. That's the speculation by many. And so the demons are looking around. They're like, they know they're going to be kicked out of this man. They know that's what Jesus is going to do. That's what he's told them. He's told them to come out of him. And so the demons are looking. They're saying, hey, look, just let us go live in those pigs over there. And Jesus says, sure. It says he gives them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. And then the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now you have to picture this even. 2,000 pigs, that's a whole lot of pigs. I mean, I've, I've been to pig, I mean, it's a huge number. And now try and picture in your mind this huge 2,000 pigs streaming down into the water and they're hitting the water and they're swimming and they're squealing in the water. That's a whole lot of bacon that's gone, isn't it? Sorry, but I, that, that, that's, what, that's what comes to my mind. Is, so there's, but there's this, it's this horrific scene that's going on. But if we look beyond the bacon, one of the things that maybe comes to mind is, what is going on here? Why did Jesus say yes to the demons? Why does he let them go in the pigs? And at this point, we come to that place in the story where we realize the Bible doesn't always give us the answers we're looking for. And I heard a, an author, Sky Jatani, give what I thought was a helpful metaphor. And Sky was talking about another issue, but he was talking about the idea of map making. And it was something, a realization that he had had, and he had been reading a book about cartographers and about the making of maps. And one of the things this book told him about maps was, when you're making a map, What's just as important as what you put on the map is what you don't put on the map. He went on and he said, imagine a subway map. If you ever, ever you've been in a city and you look at a subway map and oftentimes it's just a line with a bunch of dots on it. It's not always drawn to scale, but it tells you where each of the stops are. When you're looking and when you're getting on the subway, that's what you need to know. You need to know what the next stop is where the stops are along the way. Imagine if somebody gave you a subway map and it showed you every crossroad and where all the sewers were and, and the electric lines overhead and, and where the vendors were and where the nearest McDonald's was. You'd look at the map and you wouldn't know what was going on. Sometimes when we draw a map, what's important is what we tend to leave out. And the Bible works that way sometimes too. Because the Bible leaves things out. The Bible writers leave things out so we can see what's important. So we can see what matters. For Mark, I think what he's telling us is all these other things aren't important. Our questions about why did Jesus do that? Why did they choose the pigs? Why did they... What the writers are focusing on is the power of Jesus to heal and to change and to bring about these changes. So the pigs are drowned, and then the people, we learn there's other people there. So those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town. Why well, would do? It's like, you're in charge of the pigs, you're watching them. 2,000 pigs, that's a whole lot of money, whatever year you live in. And all of a sudden, they're all drowned. 
And so you're running back to the town to tell people, hey, um, there was a guy just showed up in a boat. And you know the guy we, we put off in the graveyard? The demon came out of him and went in these pigs and the pigs are all gone. And then the story goes on. It says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Well, what are they afraid of? I mean, everything's better now. The, the, guy's, the guy's not scary anymore. He's not breaking chains and screaming and trying to cut himself with rocks. What they're afraid of is they're afraid of Jesus. Why are they afraid of Jesus? Because they realize that Jesus is more powerful than what's been possessed by the man. And there's something inherent because they don't know who Jesus is. They know that when people have power, they tend to misuse it. They know that oftentimes the powerful people are the ones that oppress them. And so they're seeing this power and they're, they're afraid of it. They don't know the way Jesus cares. They don't understand. They haven't spent time with him. And they say, oh, I don't know about this Jesus. And so they're afraid. And the people begin to plead with Jesus to leave the region. They don't want Jesus around. And I'm thinking, why would you not want Jesus? I mean, he just healed this guy. But they're not willing to accept what Jesus brings. And so I want us to think about the story and maybe some of the implications of what's going on here, because I think there's a few things we think, what does this story have to do with us today? How might I read this story and what it might be saying to us? I think one of the ways we might read the story for us is to think of one of the questions that I wondered about and that I've kind of alluded to is, all these pigs these farmers who lost out on their herd, the economic impact on the town. But Mark isn't concerned with telling us that. Even the townspeople, they don't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you just broke me. I just bought all those pigs. They're just afraid of Jesus and they want Jesus gone. But I think what Mark is getting at, and maybe what we see in Jesus is, where do we place value? I think what the story might be suggesting to us is that the value of one man's life is far more than any herd of pigs. That in the economy of God, what is infinitely valuable are people. And so Jesus looks and he is less concerned with the economics of pigs than he is with the economics of one man whose life is being destroyed, defamed, defaced. And so it's an invitation for us to see how Jesus responds to people. Maybe to a family living in a box. Maybe to our neighbor who posts a sign for a different political party than we are a part of. Maybe it's for the kid in school who's nobody ever sits with in the cafeteria. But to look and to see that in those people is the image of God. And they are of immense value, far more than anything else. Because we are so often tempted to think economically, to think, oh, what's it going to cost? Well, but if I do that, imagine the economic impact. And Jesus is saying, I'm not concerned with the economic impact. What I am concerned with is that's a person over there who desperately needs to be helped.
Second implication that I want us to think about is how do we treat people? Now, I realize in this story we're dealing with a man who's demon-possessed. But I started the sermon with this picture of Jack. This boy in our school who was always pushed to the margins. And I think this is an invitation for us to say, do we notice the people who are pushed to the margins? Do we look and do we see them and do we consider them of infinite value the way Jesus does? Do we see their value or are we like the townspeople and when we see somebody that doesn't fit in our mold, that doesn't seem to quite put in, that we put them out in the tombs? We just want to push them aside where we don't want to deal with them. I know that's what it's like for me sometimes. You go down 31 and you pull off some of the exits and oftentimes there's somebody standing there with a sign. And I know none of you ever do this, but my tendency when that happens is like, I, I at that moment, moment need to memorize my odometer reading. <laughs> I stare down, I stare as hard as I can at that dashboard because I don't want to see. And so maybe this is a story, an invitation to us to say, how often do I just want to push people to the margin? And how often is God inviting me to look and to see? Final implication that I want us to think about is one that um, a pastor, a theologian named Eugene Lowry writes about. And Eugene Lowry imagines this scenario and he kind of in one of his sermons, kind of creatively crafts this. I didn't read the whole sermon. I just saw this quote from the sermon where he was talking about imagining the man possessed by demons saying more. And the man said something like this. I have an army inside my head. An army of voices. Sometimes they tell me to go left. Sometimes they tell me to go right. Sometimes they're telling me to go in all different directions. I feel like there's a war inside of me and I'm losing. And I think what Lowry is getting at is maybe this idea that maybe the other way we see this story is though we may not be possessed by literal demons, that sometimes it feels like there is an army of voices inside our head. An army of voices telling us to go this way and to go that way sometimes telling us to go in all sorts of different directions. Maybe an army of voices telling us that we're supposed to be out in the tombs, that we don't matter, that no one likes us. And in the midst of those voices inside our head telling us that, we're invited by Mark to hear the voice of someone else, to hear the voice of Jesus, the one who commands the winds and the waves. To hear the voice of the one who commands the voice of demons. The one who heals and restores. And so maybe that's what you need to hear today. Maybe you feel those voices are inside your head. And maybe it's not an army of voices. Maybe it's just one voice. And what I want you to hear is a different voice. The voice of Jesus speaking to you and saying... I love you. The voice that comes to heal and to restore you. 
The same voice that commanded the winds and the waves and they obey him. The same voice that commanded the demons and they came out is the same voice that can speak into the midst of our fears, into the midst of our anxieties, into the midst of all the other voices that are coming in them. And he can calm them. He can remove them. And he can stay, say to them, you are healed and you are restored. That's the voice of Jesus. So may we hear that voice. When we ask the question, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? It's Jesus, the son of the most high God. And he cares about you and he wants to heal you and to restore you. Whatever it is that's afflicting you, whatever it is that's seeking to drown you, whatever the voices are in your ear. So may you hear his voice. And may you find healing And may you find restoration this day. Amen.